Hello and welcome to another episode of Shattered Lives, the Irish Daily Star's crime podcast. I'm Michael O'Toole, the paper's crime correspondent. Today's a special episode, we're going transatlantic. It's on the back of a story I did in the Star last week, in which I revealed that former US President Donald Trump was coming to his Trump International Resort in Dunbeg, County Clare, next month. We understand he's going to spend a short period of time at the resort. Now that prompted me to examine the criminal and legal problems that Mr Trump is facing in America. You may know that he has been hit with 34 felonies, criminal charges to you and me, and appeared in a court in New York last month. Now to discuss the problems that he's facing and other issues about America and Irish America, I'm delighted to be joined by two people. One, you will know, that's our series producer, Kieran Bradley, who is currently working in America with uh, our sister publication, irishstar.com. The other person is Laura Colgan, who was up until recently a news editor with the Irish Daily Star and is still a columnist with the Star. But she too has joined the American Revolution and is also, like Kieran, a content editor with irishstar.com. So we're going to be talking to both of them about the travails of Mr Trump in America. But before we go on, I would urge you to have a look at irishstar.com. It's our sister site and it's the voice of Irish America. It's been up and running for a few months and it's already proven to be a great success. It's a heady mixture of Ireland and America and it's it's certainly worth a read. Michael, how are you? Welcome to Shattered Lives. Kieran is no stranger to Shattered Lives because he's the producer. But Laura Colgan, who everybody will know from her column in The Star and previously working in The Star but is now over in America, content editing along with Kieran for The Irish Star, which is our American sister publication. And it's been up and running a few months. So tell us a bit about that. Tell us a bit about The Irish Star before we talk about Mr. Trump. So the Irish Star is the voice of Irish America. Uh, it's going to reach its first uh, US venture. Uh, the site is going great, I have to say. Uh, the community here of Irish Americans is huge. Uh, we've really hit the ground running. And there's been no shortage of news, let me tell you, between Joe Biden's visit and now the latest with Donald Trump. Uh, the site's been going great. Uh, you know, there's a huge Irish American community here. and. You know, they've been very quick to tap into us and to, to read the stories, which is great. Uh, and, you know, it's just been so busy since we got here. We got here, you know, kind of February and it was, we were very quickly into St. Patrick's Day. And now all the latest news with the current president and former president. So it's been pretty busy. And is it a, obviously people go to America on holiday and stuff, but you, you guys are now living there. Is it a, is it a culture shock? living somewhere rather than just visiting for a few days. Yeah, like it, it's a funny thing because uh, I heard someone say recently we'd understand America a lot more if they spoke a different language. And I kind of get that because the the cultural differences are pretty vast actually, like uh, kind of across when you compare it to Europe more generally. I mean, it's a fantastic place to live, don't get me wrong, and the people are generally brilliant and New York is a, is a great city. But I mean, particularly from a journalist's point of view, there's certain things you kind of need to get to grips with. Like, I mean, when myself or Laura on the news desk, like you're having to, you know, cover stuff around school shootings, et cetera, which obviously, of course, are covered internationally as well. But you feel a little bit closer to it. And it kind of, I don't know about you, Laura, but it kind of gets in your bones a little bit more as well. So you kind of feel a little bit more party to these kind of things. Um, so that's that's one of the odd things. But I mean, generally, culturally, it's been it's been brilliant. It's been a great experience for every every one of us that's been over here. And we're, we're extremely grateful for it. But yeah, I mean, there's a few things to get used to. I don't know what you think, Laura. 
It's, I, so I totally agree with you. It has been a bit of a culture shock. Like, like what you say with the language, um, I think because we speak the same language, you would think we would be more similar than we actually are, but it is quite different. Um, particularly, like you say, with guns, uh, that has really been the biggest thing for me here. It's really common to see people who are armed and a lot of, I suppose, what we would consider low-level crimes in Ireland, like, you know, shoplifting, um, kind of robberies, things like that. They're all done by people who are armed, which obviously things go wrong and people are terribly injured or lose their lives over it. Um, and like, it's really common. And I suppose from a reporter's point of view, you know, in Ireland, if there's a murder, we go, you know, we want to do it justice. We want to get the person's name, get their photo, you know, do the tribute piece, um, you know, and if there's, you know, an investigation into it or whatever, but like here, you know, there's just so many of them, like you, you like you literally couldn't. Um, and, you know, I don't think that's great from a journalistic point of view, you know, I, you know, there are definitely, murders say that I think we could have maybe covered better than we did but you know it's just the sheer volume of them like we you know there's there's no shortage of crime here um unfortunately and does that put now that you're living over there does it put Ireland into perspective because you know the way and I'm not going to get into the political side because we'll be monsters but you know everybody talks about Ireland being a cap and Ireland being dangerous and all do you look at Ireland differently when you're living away from it I mean I, I certainly appreciate the home comforts of it I suppose things like the the food and that I definitely miss but um you know, it's funny, like, I wouldn't say New York feels a lot more dangerous than Dublin. Um, I think it's just, it's different, say, like, I don't particularly like traveling on the subway at night. I don't really like being in the stations there. But at the same time, like, I don't really like being in Dublin at night either, you know. Um, so I think it's just, you know, it's it's different. But, uh, you know, I don't think Dublin is perfect either. Yeah, it, it's it's funny because I... I... I realised quite how much fondness I have for Ireland and Dublin, particularly when I came here. But I think actually, when we'll come on to this, probably in relation to the to the Donald Trump stuff, it's it's really just the scale of everything. And I'm not talking about the you know the kind of big buildings and stuff like that, but really just like the the kind of scale and professionalism and business interests. Say, for example, in in terms of politics, and I, I think what you come to appreciate really is quite how nimble a nation Ireland is. For example, if you know when say an emergency strikes that you have the ability to kind of you know it's a small nation so you can kind of move quite quickly whereas the kind of gears of everything move quite slowly here and you have to try and take into account 300 million people's different points of view and how you're going to sate voters and that kind of thing and i think it's a little bit like every country have its has its problems and ireland obviously has an enormous amount and, and it's quite a fraught political uh situation there at the moment but I mean here it's just it's just different level it's just different gravy and when you think about it I mean Laura when you worked with with, with me in the star we would probably have had in the last couple of years maybe 30 murders in a year or homicides we have to call them because of our manslaughter there's probably that many in a week in some American cities or you know what I mean it, it does put I know it's a much bigger place but you know, 30 murders compared to what I, you know, it, you know, it, it always put it into perspective for me because I'd, I'd watch American shows and, you know, have all these mass shootings, for example, but just there does seem to be a very high murder rate over there. Totally, there is. I mean, there's not a day goes by that, you know, we've reporters in New York and Philadelphia and San Francisco and like every day they'd be working on a murder, like literally every single day. Um, and, you know, some of it is, like mass shootings some of it is you know kind of gangland or you know turf war uh kind of criminality organized crime um, and others are you know sheer accidents like it's robberies go wrong uh you know people carrying weapons on the subway that they shouldn't have things like that so some of it is accidental but it doesn't 
you know, lessen the seriousness of it. Um, Because it's something we've, I suppose, talked about on the team. Obviously, kind of safety and being away from home is something we're very mindful of. But a lot of it is just so random um, that it's like if something does happen, you know, it there's probably nothing we could have done to prevent it. It, you know, is totally random. Uh, and, you know, if something, you know, if you're robbed or anything, it's unfortunately just bad luck. Um, and, you know, that's the way you have to live. Can I just ask you one, just one journalistic question? We always hear this about America being a much more open society. Do you get better access to information in America? I mean, you you would remember the problems we have and you had you know, just getting information from God. You know, you you know the job. Don't need to tell you. You know how difficult, how different is it over there? Access to information wise. It is so different. Um, say forces like the NYPD, they all have Twitter accounts, so they have like joint, you know, one for the NYPD, and a lot of officers then have their own individual accounts. They tweet every day. They tweet pictures. They tweet CCTV. They tweet, you know, like details that we would struggle to get, like names, ages, dates of birth, things like that. So it's a lot more open. Um, and, you know, it's funny if you, they, you're looking for something that, uh, you know, hasn't been out in the public, they say things to you like, oh, like I, I only have his mugshot. And you're like, you know, only mugshot. I would have never got that at home, you know. So uh, kind of what they think is the bare minimum and what we would have gotten access to at home is totally different. Um, but, you know, like I... You know, I, I do think there's something to be said for it. Uh, you know, kind of transparency and justice is really important. And, you know, I think as well, the, the other thing is, you know, the NYPD and forces here, they do offer money for tips. Um, you can get up to three and a half grand just for a tip. Um, and it's obviously more if the person goes on to be kind of prosecuted or convicted. Um, so that's, you know, I'm sure a factor in it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of way more, liberal is probably the wrong word, but you, way better access to information here. And do they release charge sheets or rap sheets, I think they call them, is it? No, generally, once the person is charged, um, they kind of let the courts take the lead on it um, and you wouldn't maybe kind of hear of it uh, until the person is then before court. But, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, getting an, making an arrest or making a charge, it's a lot more um, liberal. And of course, once they are charged, uh, you know, mugshot and that is kind of, available. Okay, speaking of which, I we're here today really to talk about former President Donald Trump. And the reason why is last week, and I'm, I was speaking to you, Laura, about it, I got a tip early in the week that Donald Trump was coming to Ireland and we were trying to get it firmed up. And uh, people, an awful lot of people would never see this because it's, as Kieran calls it, behind the curtain. You know, it, it took me a couple of days to get that firmed up because it was just, ah, well, it's up in the air and it's undecided and, and possibly. And one major bar for me running the story was I looked at the coverage of Trump appearing in court in, in, in America and I had to give up his passport. So that for me made me not run the story because I was going, well, how can he come to Ireland if he doesn't have his passport? But obviously that's been resolved. So then we broke last week that he's going to his Trump International Resort in Dunbeg in County Clare. Now, I think it's 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 a short visit. It might be 24 hours, maybe a bit longer, but it, and it's in the first week in May. So we thought we might this might be an opportunity to talk about the serious problems, the serious criminal problems that Donald Trump is facing in America. Now, if if listeners are like me, they might scan the news, they might watch CNN once or twice a week, or they might see something. So we know he's in the doo-doo, but we don't really know what it's all about. So I understand he's been hit with 34 felonies. So just to spool back slightly, myself and Laura were uh, on the desk on a Thursday evening or around a month ago now. 
um i left because <laughs> my shift was over and i uh, as is my as is my one when i got back uh we found out that the grand jury that had been in panel to look into donald trump had um had recommended that he faces uh indictments for uh felony charges relating well at that point we didn't know but we subsequently found out that 34 felony charges relating to falsifying business documents now, the interesting thing here is, obviously, of course, that's seismic. He becomes the first uh, current or former um, president to face criminal charges. So it is it is historic. But also, uh, one of the first questions that came out was the fact that falsifying business records actually in New York is normally charged as a misdemeanor. So misdemeanors, obviously, for those who uh, are unfamiliar, there are two types of charges that you can face. Misdemeanors are, are less serious and felonies are a touch more serious. So these related to uh, payments made to the adult actress Stormy Daniels in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election. They were paid, allegedly, at least by Michael Cohen, who was Trump's uh, personal attorney and kind of former confidant. And uh, essentially... This money was paid to Stormy Daniels to stop her from talking about an affair, which again is alleged people um, believed would be damaging to Donald Trump himself. So this was a seismic event, as I say. I mean, then, then we retreated to over the course of that weekend, you know, just the absolute uh, theater and circus around what would happen here. Obviously, we didn't know when he would be coming, what would happen, you know, the the process of how he would get from midtown Manhattan where Trump Tower is to, to the courthouse and all this kind of thing. Um, but essentially, just to, to come back to the felony point, the, the, there are five categories of felonies that you can have. Category A is the most serious, category E is the least serious, and these are category E charges. So how they upgrade from misdemeanors to felonies, the DA will have to prove that there was a link from the falsification of business records, i.e. the the fact that um, records were changed to show that these payments were being made to Stormy Daniels rather than, as has been alleged, as a retainer to Michael Cohen. The, The state will have to prove that this is linked to another crime or crimes with a, quote, intent to defraud. So that's how they get upgraded, essentially, to felony charges in this regard. Now, of course, we came to the point where Donald Trump was in Manhattan. Myself, I was up by Trump Tower with this enormous throng of media and supporters and you know critics, etc. So he went down to the Manhattan District Courthouse. He uh, pled not guilty to the charges against him. And now we're in somewhat of another zone. So hopefully that's a little bit of uh, background for you. And is it essentially that he was having an affair, allegedly? with Stormy Daniels, and this was all hush money to stop her talking about before the election. It, it relates to that, certainly. But the the actual payment of money to someone to keep quiet about something in and of itself actually is not a crime. Like That is my understanding of it, at least. It is the fact that, as the state allege again, that uh, business records in relation to these payments were dressed up as a retainer payment to Michael Cohen, which Michael Cohen, who has since... Uh, been to jail actually for several federal charges that he faced and has has really turned on Trump, has said that was not the case. So we're in this period now where, of course, we know what the charges are, but we have this enormous kind of morass of time now between uh, the next hearings uh, between the uh, under seen over by Judge Juan Marchan, uh, where we just simply don't know how the case will play out. But I mean, the the kind of legal expertise around this now, our uh, legal experts, I should say are saying that the difficulty now is for the state to be able to prove that there is a link between 
this payment being made and a wider kind of criminal conspiracy, I suppose. Right. How much trouble is he in? I mean, the, the fact it's being treated as a felony is not good. Uh, this would normally be a misdemeanor charge, but because of who he was and that kind of the ultimate goal was to influence the outcome of this election, that's why it's a felony. So, you know, it's kind of a, I wouldn't say an unusual case in that regard, but you know, it's not something they would see that common. As well as the, the payment to Stormy Daniels, payments relating to Karen McDougall, who was a former Playboy model, uh, who had a relationship with Donald Trump, is also uh, part of this. And also a doorman uh, who worked for Trump, he claimed to have information that Donald Trump had fathered a child uh, with a staff member. Uh, none of that was true. Uh, Donald Trump does not have a secret child. Uh, but obviously in the run up to the 2016 election, any kind of rumor of this would have, you know, Trump, I suppose, just cut his losses, wasn't going to have that argument and just paid him off. Um, so that's what it all relates to. Um, in terms of kind of the the next legal hurdle, the next court date is in December. It's just a hearing. Trump isn't actually expected to intend himself. Uh, he's actually been excused on kind of security reasons, which, you know, Manhattan was such a circus um, the day of the arraignment, uh, like preparation started probably four days before outside the courthouse in terms of setting up barricades and things like that. So I think, to be honest, the justice system is happy enough not to have him back in December. But the, the trial could begin as early as January next year. And Trump seems eager to actually have it uh, go ahead as soon as possible. Often in these kind of cases, you know, you try to delay, delay, delay in the hope that the case would collapse or other issues would come up. But he really wants it to go ahead. Uh, he believes he, you know, will be acquitted. Um, and he, you know, he keeps saying that this is just political persecution. It's all part of a, a larger uh, conspiracy to stop him running for the White House again. So he wants this to go ahead um, and he wants it done and dusted so that he can run for election again, essentially, as an innocent man. Yeah, and it, it's an interesting, actually, aspect to this because there, there's a bit of a, a, a kind of space between Trump's legal team and Trump himself. And I actually think this is one of the themes that we really need to be watching out for is that Trump's legal team have essentially been saying the opposite in the same they wanted more time to be able to kind of put their case together, whereas Trump obviously goes off on his own tangents. And actually, this is one of the major problems I feel in terms of we're talking about the, the trouble that he's in. The, the judge said to him, without imposing a gagging order, essentially said, we will be watching like a hawk what you say about this case. Uh, and now, of course, Trump is on the campaign trail and this is going to form a, a plank of his inflaming of his base. But he is now caught between the the muted Trump that we saw in the Mar-a-Lago speech where he was on message. He was literally reading off the teleprompter, but it was a dull speech. It takes away from what people like about Donald Trump, this kind of off the, off the wall thing. But then you have this now tension, I believe, between his legal team and him keeping him on message and also, you know, out of trouble. Do we know, would either of you know, and I always look to the, the end case, if he does get convicted, do we know what the sanction is, what penalties there are? Is it, is it prison like or what? I think it's very unlikely that he's going to go to prison for one, you know, similar to the justice system in Ireland, the judge would take into account a lot of uh, factors, things like lack of previous convictions, his age, um, you know, that kind of thing, you know, the nature of the crime, that it's kind of a white collar crime rather than a violent crime. All of those things would come into, you know, the judge's consideration. Also, the fact that Donald Trump uh, is kind of required to have Secret Service protection. I don't think the taxpayer here in America would thank the judge for 
you know, making it so that their taxes had to be spent protecting Trump with Secret Service agents in prison. So I think it's pretty unlikely. I think, you know, if he were convicted, it would probably be a fine of some sort. Um, I don't think he's looking at prison time, but that's not to say that, you know, other people who were convicted of such felonies may not go to prison. They might. See, when he was, is, is it booked? When when they booked him, he, he wasn't handcuffed or shackled or anything, was he? No, that was a real point of contention because I think the the feeling in the Trump camp was, you know, to to have him up as this kind of, you know, prisoner of the state. You know, the man kind of railing against the the swamp would have been ideal for them. They wanted a mugshot, again, reportedly. And I think actually that's that's part of the general background of this is the the political kind of dance that happens. And 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 again, it should be said that this is inherently political, as you know, in the sense that it's not driven necessarily by the fact that you know a president can't be seen to be convicted or or charged with anything but more the fact that all the district attorneys uh, across the US are appointed by a president Donald Trump did the same thing Alvin Bragg was appointed by Joe Biden here as well but like but they're trying to dress it up as this political witch hunt and therefore they're trying to do anything in their power to make it look you know, in a way like the democrats are kind of turning against the the working class in America the his solicitor his, his lawyer I can't remember his name, but he's supposed to be a real heavy hitter who was brought in especially for this. And I know that, that he said he is he believes that the case will not get to a jury, that it'll be dismissed effectively. What would you think of that? I'm not sure about that. I think the DA, Alvin Bragg, was very careful in bringing these charges. Um, you know, it took not only was he the person who decided Trump was going to be charged, he was the person who decided on the on the exact charges. And there was a, a lot of kind of uncertainty uh, in the lead up to the actual arraignment, what exactly those charges would be. Initially, we were hearing the number 17. That kind of, you know, really increased then to 34. So I don't think that would have happened unless they had real evidence to back that up. Um, the other thing to notice is that Alvin Bragg, the district attorney here in Manhattan, he's only been in the role a little over a year, but white collar crime is something that he has really gone after since he's been appointed. It's really been uh, something he has focused on. So it is an area of expertise for him. Um, and I don't think he would have gone for all 34 charges unless he thought he had a good chance of getting convictions on all of them. Um, so I, I would disagree. I would think it will go before a jury. I, th- I think we will hear this case. Yeah, and it's interesting more more generally kind of around the, as I say, the dance of this stuff. The, the legal team had been talking about moving the, the, the hearing out of Manhattan. Manhattan is very much a, a Democrat um, part of the world. They're talking about potentially looking to have it moved to Staten Island where there's more of a conservative um, streak within the, the the public, of course, if this is her, uh, before a jury. But again, that, that you know, the, the general talk here is that that's likely to be thrown out. So yeah, it remains to be seen, I suppose. And I, I, you can correct me in this. I don't know if every criminal trial is televised, but I presume this would, one would. Well, that's actually an area we're not uh, sure of because the the, arra- the arraignment itself, typically an arraignment would be televised, but the judge didn't allow it. In this case, the, the compromise was that uh, press photographers were allowed to go in and take still shots um, before kind of proceedings got underway. So that the, they're the pictures that we saw of him in the courtroom. Uh, TV cameras were allowed in the corridors outside. So they saw him going in and going out, but it was really like a shot of about three or four seconds. Um, so really it'll come down to the judge. I think there is an appetite for it to be televised. Um, not only from you know people who are against Trump and kind of want to see him you know, in the court facing justice, but also his supporters who think this is political persecution. They want to see every 
cough and spit of this trial. They want to see every word of it for themselves. Um, so really, it'll come down to the judge's decision, but uh, hopefully it will be televised. Uh, you know, it, it's a real thing in America here, you know, for justice to be seen, to be done. Uh, you know, it should be televised. So, you know, and it, it was very unusual that the arraignment itself wasn't televised. So uh, I would think we would see this on TV. Yeah, particularly given, sorry, uh, just particularly given the, I mean, where our apartments are, you can see right up and down the Hudson. So you can see where Lower Manhattan is and the, just the, of, of course, the media interest in this is insane. I mean, you just saw helicopter after helicopter going around and around trying to get the most minimal shots of what was happening. It's the same thing when we were down on the ground at Trump Tower and Jane, our colleague, down at the the, the courthouse. I mean, the the sheer interest in this. I mean, it would it would blow the OJ uh, trial into into the weeds. I would say, Laura, I've never known you to be wrong about anything. What's going to happen? <laughs> oh, don't ask me that. Uh, I don't know. I, I I I think it will go before a jury. I think we will hear the full case. I don't know how the verdict will go. I think it depends on the evidence that we have yet to hear. But um, I, I this is I like, this know. is like me I and Healy know. trying to call <laughs> the Hutch thing. Oh, I, 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 <laughs> And yeah. In fact, actually, that's a real hospital pass. Then, well, it is. Uh, well, you're next, Bradley. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> I'll do a classic politician's answer here to begin with. So, I think there are no winners from this at the moment, in the sense that um, Trump, of course, you know, is doing everything to inflame his base to say that this is a witch hunt. But actually, you saw these little snippets of Trump kind of uh muted and a little bit sort of defenestrated by the whole situation like he there was a point actually you were uh, talking about the the kind of the cameras in the corridor someone it was one of the um prison officers i think just walked through and didn't leave the the door open for trump and it almost kind of smacked him in the face and there was just this moment where i was just like bloody hell that's that's an unusual one but really on the wider point as well coming into a presidential uh, election of course, Trump will try and use this to his advantage. But for example, Ron DeSantis, his presumptive Republican kind of uh, opposite number, is really going to struggle to be able to use this in any sense against Trump without, again, alienating his base. Joe Biden's really going to struggle with getting any kind of oxygen really for any uh, public agenda. Obviously, he's re-announced his uh, presidential campaign. And more widely, I mean, American politics is so fraught at the moment that something like this, which really will be used as a cleave between the, the right and the left, is just something I think we could do without. Anyway, all of my nonsense out of the way, look, as, as it has been said many, many times before, it'll be up to the judges, or in this case, the jury. So there we go. If he is convicted and, and he's a felon, are felons allowed to stand for president? Well, you know? this is an interesting topic. Well, it's not that they're allowed as such, but it's, you know, there's no precedent. Like, this has never happened before. So there's, there's nothing preventing felons from running for the presidency. But it's it's not that it's, you know, a liberty or it's allowed or it's something that America has kind of agreed into. It's it's just that it has never happened before. Um, well, actually, I was, lo- I was looking into this. Sorry, just out of interest, because I was looking to see if there's any historical... I don't know actually whether it was a felon or not, but there was a Socialist Party nominee called uh, Eugene Debs, who received nearly a million votes while he was in prison a century ago in 1920. He became the nominee for uh, uh, for the Socialist Party while serving a 10-year sentence for urging people to resist the World War I draft. So I, I wouldn't quite put Trump up with your man Debs, but uh, I mean, as Laura, of course, said, the, the 
there's nothing preventing someone who has a criminal record from running for office. I mean, whether it will sway vote, uh, you know, floating voters, who knows. But if he, if he loses, I presume it will be before the election. Either way, it'll be before the election. So uh, if he does lose, if he is convicted, if he is branded a criminal, would that be the death knell for his campaign? Or are Americans so entrenched that they'll go no matter what, we're still supporting some Americans? I... I don't think Trump will be the Republican nominee for the next um, election. I think Joe Biden's side, you know, they want it to be a rematch. They want it to be Trump versus Biden again. They feel they won it once. They want it to happen again. Um, and also, you know, the age issue that keeps coming up uh, with Biden's re-election. Biden is 80 now. Trump is 76. So there's not a huge age disparity between them. And if it is a Trump versus Biden kind of rematch, uh, that argument will obviously kind of fall by the wayside. But I, I just, I'm not sure it will be. I think Joe Biden will be the, will, you know, be the candidate again. But on the other side, I, I don't think it'll be Trump. I don't know who it'll be. I don't know if it'll be Ron DeSantis. I don't know if it'll be Nikki Haley. But I don't know. I just, I, at the moment, I don't think it'll be Trump. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. Like, because DeSantis, say, six months ago, really felt like bloody hell. I mean, this is real, the kind of the darling of the right now in the sense of, He's a more polished Trump. Essentially, he's saying the same stuff, but he's less liable to gaffes that are going to get him into into problems. But even before this case kind of came to pass, there was a feeling of the kind of the the air going out of the balloon a little bit. And as I say, I, I do think that like DeSantis will struggle now when they do have a kind of almost mobilized base around Trump to to get this over the line. So I I I I disagree slightly with Laura just personally in the sense that I, I suspect this might get him over the line for the Republican nomination. But I do think that on the wider point, I think there are a lot, this is a tight election as it is, and a lot of people would be turned off by this. But again, of course, that's not to say that an enormous amount of people wouldn't, you know, see this as a as a core celeb for for the right. So it's very difficult to call really at this stage. When 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 I was watching I may have been on Twitter, I saw some clips and Outside the courtroom, or the court, I'm not going to say there were clashes, but there were angry mobs going at each other. Is, is, is that how polarised America is now? America is really polarised at the moment, and certainly, I suppose, part of having that means they don't necessarily reward um, sitting politicians or you know former politicians, which is part of the reason I, I don't think Trump will will be the candidate again. Um, you know, there's a sense that they feel they've been left down by successful governments. Um, you know, there's nobody standing up for them, and I think there is a bit of a, a disappointment in Trump in that you know he was such a different kind of presidential candidate in that you know he came from a business background. You know, at home we would often hear you know people say things like you know we should have someone you know, a businessman running the HSE because, you know, they squander so much money and they take so much time to do everything. You know, I suppose there was a hope that because Trump was so different, you know, he would have a different presidency, which of course he did, but I don't think it was the way in which people thought it would be. Um, and, you know, certainly at the last election, a lot of people voted for Joe Biden, not because they particularly liked him, but just because he wasn't Donald Trump. So it's not that they think that Joe Biden is a particularly good president either. It was just that he wasn't Donald Trump. Um, so, I mean, you know, the country is really polarized. There are a lot of, you know, the kind of far right supporters who values align with Donald Trump, but there are also people who just kind of feel he was, you know, the least bad of two options, if you know what I mean. Um, they're kind of reluctant supporters. They wouldn't go to the rallies or they don't get heated about things. It's just, um, they feel he was the only choice, but uh, aren't particularly aligned with him. And now that this has happened, because 
you have to remember the Democrats, like you can imagine them on the campaign trail now, if it's they're up against Trump, it'll be, you know, they'll be talking about the January 6th riots, they'll be talking about, you know, twice impeached, facing criminal charges, you know, I mean, it's kind of a, an easy campaign for them to go after him. So, um, you know, I just, I just don't think it'll be Trump. I just don't. And do you think it'll be your man DeSantis then or Nikki Haley or is it? I, I don't know. I don't think it'll be Nikki Haley, to be honest. Um, I think Ron DeSantis, he's kind of the front runner, but he keeps saying that he hasn't declared himself as a candidate yet. So I'm not really sure what his strategy is. Um, I can't quite figure him out, but I would think he is the strongest candidate at the moment. But who knows? Like it's it's still a while to go. Um, the polls, uh, you know, even for Biden's support, what they were now compared to what they were 18 months out from the 2020 election are a lot lower. So I mean, like who knows? Like it's I know they say like a week is a short time in politics, but like 18 months really is. Things will change hugely. Yeah, it, like to come back to the question you asked Laura there. Uh, it is incredibly polarized at the moment. And the, I, I think for me, where my mind keeps going with this is, uh, I actually think that people underestimate quite how fragile democracies are. And I think populist politicians like Trump and, and to a lesser extent, uh, DeSantis know how to exploit fears and concerns. And um, if Trump can use this to his advantage, then he will, whether that's going to get him across the line in a kind of general election, I, I don't know. But I do think that the danger of a vindicated and sort of vindictive Trump coming into power in 2024, where he's talked about, you know, the judiciary being weaponized, etc. If he feels that that's happened against him, then he will, I mean, God knows what will happen to American democracy if, if he does get back in. I'm, I'm trying not to overstate this, but I mean, literally, I, I think it's important to remember January the 6th and just quite how close the mechanisms of American government came to falling down. Now, actually, I think this is a kind of interesting side point here, and, and this is probably one of the almost cases against the, the, the DA and the Democrats more widely, if we want to throw them in the same, is that there are so many cases and ongoing investigations into Trump that this is by far the least uh, kind of important in, in one sense. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying that it's not important, but the January 6th uh, Congressional Committee uh, have referred him for criminal charges in relation to this, have relate, uh, in terms of obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to knowing, make, knowingly make false statements and assisting, aiding or comfort, uh, comforting an insurrection. Like, I mean, this is, you, they're, they're, they're very difficult charges to overstate. Now, as I say, just really coming back to Trump's personality, if he gets in and he is feeling like a wounded animal, then, I mean, really we're all in a bad, a bad situation because America, you know, when America sneezes, the whole world catches a cold or, you know, to paraphrase. So I, I just, I think myself and Laura have spoken about this before, the, the the feeling of just polarization here is is palpable and i think we all kind of need to talk ourselves back from the brink in our different countries and literally start trying to understand a little bit more about one another's points of view because it, it it is quite a scary time laura can i just ask you that that's raised an issue with me laura you were we were talking off air about there's a big trial at the minute involving the pride boys are they effectively Nazis. I wouldn't quite call them white supremacists there. I would say they're a far right group um, and a lot of their values would align with what Trump stood for. So when he was president, all of those groups kind of merged into one and a lot of the represent a lot of the people who were at the January 6th riots were 
members of the Proud Boys. Um, there's a big trial going on in Washington at the minute with a kind of someone who was a chairman of the Proud Boys, Enrique Taras, and four others. Um, and they're facing quite serious charges rather than just um, it's a it's a very complicated conspiracy charge. I can't remember the exact name of the charge, but it's he's looking at like a 20 year stretch if he's convicted. The jury went out last night, um, but a lot of the evidence in it suggested they were kind of trying to distance themselves from Donald Trump a little bit. They were saying they were kind of scapegoats for the January 6th riots. They were kind of saying basically they were put up to it. It wasn't their idea. You know, Donald Trump was the mastermind and they were just the gillies who did the running around on the day. Now, who knows if that's really the truth or if they're just saying that in the hope of getting off. Um, but the jury went out yesterday and I think, you know, it'd be very telling how that goes because up until now, you know, there have been prison sentences handed down to people who were involved in the January 6th riots, but they've been, you know, kind of short enough, you know, it's been for assault, it's been for, there was one, it was a, a former fireman through fire extinguishers at law enforcement, uh, things like that, you know, just kind of, um, a lot of them were kind of, uh, you know, solo people who just turned up on the day and, you know, got carried away or whatever. But um, this trial now involving kind of former members of the Proud Boys, I think it'll kind of be a, a landmark in those uh, in those cases. And just let me ask you, just because we don't really delve deep, and you guys have been there a couple of months, do you think there are, is a significant, I don't know what you call them, far-right or Nazi subspecies in America? I mean, is it a, is it a big problem? I think that there are kind of trends that you can recognise really across the globe. I certainly recognise elements of not quite the Proud Boys, but certainly a sort of feeling of disenfranchised white male um, trend within Ireland and, and certainly within the UK. So I think I think the sort of the you know it's like when we use the word evil, for example. I feel like it it it, it removes the need for examination. Like if you if you dress someone up as a Nazi, if you you know of course they might have extremely racist points of view or whatever. But I think we need to recognize really within our societies kind of where this stuff is coming from and how to counteract it. Because if you look at Trump's um, victory, you know, somewhat unexpected victory in 2016, it's not just those people that voted for Donald Trump. There are a lot of people who are disenfranchised, felt disassociated from kind of mechanisms of government, feel it wasn't working for them. But obviously there is within uh, within the, the right wing of a lot of countries, people who feel that... <laughs> there's nothing in this country for them or they feel like they're being turned against and then unfortunately social media being what it is the echo chamber that it is and forming these subcultures you see it everywhere and you certainly see it here and i think that you know it forms a particular strain of the maga element but then again you also see it in the kind of islanders full stuff at home you see this kind of the these deeply unpleasant aspects of things. But again, we can't kind of wash our hands of it and say that these people are evil or Nazis. Like there are parts of our society and we need to figure out how to counteract it and how to offset it because, I mean, it's, it's deeply worrying. Um, you mentioned Trump being vindicated and being vindictive and that jumped out at me because I'll tell you why. Sources I'm speaking to in Ireland, I, I don't know if this has been ve uh, ventilated over there. Obviously, the whole raison d'etre for this part is that he's coming to Ireland. But the belief among certain people here is that he got pissed off seeing the positive PR that Joe Biden got in America and he, or when he came to Ireland. He well, ha, that's not happening. So he decided, right, well, I'm going to Ireland as well. And that just strikes me as vindictive and petty. But I, but that's what people with a, a close knowledge of the, the, the trip would believe, that he went, right, this is, I'm not letting Joe Biden have all the good publicity. Did the, did the Irish trip have many headlines in America? 
Uh, it did, I suppose, um, in that it was covered, you know, like uh, kind of political correspondents did travel to Ireland to do it. Now, it would not have been the top story on any news outlet. It would have been kind of packages running late at night or that kind of thing. Um, the, the biggest thing that actually, while he was in Ireland, was that he didn't come home for the case involving the... The data leak. Uh, oh, the 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 the, the fella Texera, the the the, the, yes. the guardsman who leaked everything on a Discord server. Yeah, that's the exact yes. case. Um, he was under pressure to come home to America and sort that out. Uh, at the time, Kamala Harris was also abroad as well. Um, so it was kind of like you know, there's nobody in the White House running the show when this kind of big uh scandal broke so you know to be honest that was the the biggest thing that happened uh during the ireland trip but now it was covered i mean it was certainly teed up um before he traveled as you know a homecoming uh you know americans got to know his heritage um there are a lot of irish americans here but i, I you know there's not the same voting cohort as there would have been some years ago um you know, people won't vote for him just because he's Irish American, but uh, they obviously kind of identify with him in that way. Um, but uh, you know, it, it was covered, but it, it wasn't like a huge deal. Is is Ireland? Because uh, you're 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 living there and you're you're you know, you're getting deep down. You're watching American TV, all this sort of stuff that you don't really see when you're looking from afar. Is Ireland a thing for Americans? Do you know what I mean by that? Is it a you know? Is it on the radar? Oh, for Irish Americans, it is enormously. And actually, sorry, I wouldn't just limit it to Irish Americans. Like if you mention that you are from Ireland, your family's from Ireland, et cetera, the amount of people who, you know, will, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but will say, oh yeah, my family's Irish or my great grandparents are Irish or whatever. But really the, the, the general sense of fondness for the place is remarkable. And I mean, you, you only really need to have been in Dublin when you see American tourists around, like they absolutely love the country. Um, and it's not just limited to Irish Americans, but myself and Laura and, and the team were up in Yonkers for Paddy's Day. And as I said to you guys before, I have never felt less Irish in my life. These guys take it to like a, a stellar new level. Like you're, you're there and I was at the, the New York GAA match recently and you hear these guys being like, yo, Maureen, get me a beer. And like, you know, it's just amazing. It's really funny. And like, it, you know, it, there's an amazing um, cohort of Irish Americans. We're, we're particularly very proud to be able to tell their stories and kind of get them to people back home as well. But yeah, certainly Ireland's very fun. I, I, I don't know what you think, Laura. No, I agree. I mean, I mean, I think anyone you tell you're from Ireland, they come back with, I'm Irish too, whether they're Irish or not. And I think in certain communities, things like firefighters, police officers, uh, you know, a lot of caring staff are Irish as well. And, you know, certainly um, there'd be an element of generation, you know, they're a firefighter, their father was a firefighter, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, there, you know, there is a real sense of identity with that. Um, but I mean, I don't think we've had anyone uh, who we've told we were Irish and they didn't like that or anything. To be honest, they kind of uh, nearly, I've met a couple of times with, oh, how come you only moved now? You know, our family moved hundreds of years ago. You're kind of behind the times or something. But uh, uh, no, I do think they, they, you know, they do have an affection for the country. And are you, all the Irish journalists, and, it's, and it's the, Irish, the, web, the Irish Star website is irishstar.com. I urge everybody to go on it. They really, I really like it because it's sort of, it's, it's, I think it's halfway in the Atlantic. It's Irish and it's American and it's really great. It's, I think it's got its own fantastic identity and it's, it, I'm sure it's going to be a great success. But it, I, I, people should, if they can, log on because it's really, really great website. But do you get a good welcome saying you're Irish as journalists over there? 
Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's funny because you're, you're coming in, as I say, to this sort of what you feel is quite a polarized kind of society. And the idea of saying publicly that you're a journalist might, you know, get your head chopped off or something. But no, generally speaking, people are, are, are great. And thankfully, we've been going to so many, so many Irish bars or pubs that like when you mention who you work for, they're like, all right, sweet, let's do an article on you or this kind of thing. So um, no, it's, it's been great. I mean, really, you know, to, to kind of widen out, the experience has just been fantastic. I mean, you know, there's there's nothing I could really ask for more from it. Like we're, we've got a great team, as you say, like the, the website's going really well. And I would say as well, you know, we are always open to new stories, myself and Laura and, and Mick. Like if you have any one in particular that you feel is good to talk to or to cover, then we're 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 always open. But Laura, what do you think about the the mixed question there? You know, I really like working here. So, you know, we've had a, a really warm, warm welcome and we really have hit the ground running, you know, and that when we do go into Irish American communities, like they know who we are. Um, you know, I mean the site has only been live for about two months and, you know, especially around St. Patrick's Day, like, I mean, we had more stories than we could cover, you know what I mean? Which has been great. Um, the only big difference I've seen is some people will ask you for your political leanings. Um, now I tend not to answer and say, you know, there is no country other than America where readers care what the journalist thinks about a certain topic, you know? Um, you know, I, like I tell them at home, nobody would ever ask me that, nor would they care. Uh, you know, so that's been the only big difference. But um, I mean, generally, we've got a warm welcome. I had the same feeling as Kieran. I was a little bit reluctant to tell people I was a journalist at first. I didn't know how it would go. Um, now you hear around Washington, journalists are treated a little bit differently. Obviously, it's more polarized given it's political in nature. Uh, but certainly here in New York, I mean, I think people tend to think we're hard working and doing our best and uh, getting, you know, real stories out there. Yeah, Laura, you got to stop wearing that MAGA hat out there. It's a real problem. <laughs> I, I I would have always, like many years back, there would have been cases in America and I would have had to, you know, I always I always found whenever I was ringing cops or, you know, police stations or whatever, you can ring the detective bureau. I would always ring the, you know, Jesus was fantastic. So I always got a good welcome for it. But one of my darkest journalistic secrets happened in a call to Ireland. I was on to an Irish American cop and to my shame, I did say top of the morning to you. <laughs> Listen, if it got me a story, it got me, it gets me a story. So it worked. There's no problem. Good. Laura, just while, while you're here as well, so you can bear witness, you're actually fired from the podcast now as a result okay. of that. I, I, feel myself, so. I feel myself going red at the shame about it. <laughs> anyway, lads, this has been a fantastic chat. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. And I think we might do it again. I just, America is a great place of stories. And I think our one, one thing that the readers DM me, and I'm probably DM you, and I know they DM Paul, they really like, the way we explain things, we, we we dig down and just contextualize things, and it's not it doesn't have to be about crime. Although this is technically a crime story, so Laura, I think we're going to have to have you back. Unfortunately, sorry about that. And Bradley, you can't escape because you're the producer, and you're going to turn this into magic. <laughs> I'm locked in, pal. Locked in, handcuffed to the thing. So we'll do it again. I, you know, we'll make it. And I think they call it an occasional series. But you know, it was really great chatting to both of you. These obviously have landed in your feet because you've got a great level of knowledge to pair of you, and I'm very very impressed. So we'll definitely do it again. <laughs>